Lord God, we want to thank you again for this opportunity to gather together only through the name of your son, Jesus, to approach your throne, to bring you praise, to express our love, and now to hear from you your word um, to your church today. I pray, God, that this word is edifying to your church, that it's glorifying to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we are good students and stewards of your word. Lord, please fill us with your Holy Spirit, both as the word is spoken and as we receive it. Lord, help us to be challenged at our core, to see that we are biblical Christians and that we give you honor that is fitting to you. Teach us now in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I think I told you before, but when I was in high school, I had a job as a sailmaker, which meant I didn't really participate in any uh, sports other than debate. I, I lettered in debate, but you know what? They don't consider that a sport. Uh, I, uh, it was a great job, though, because I could work any hours I wanted to with one stipulation I had to stay ahead of the seamstresses. So I basically cut sails, and then the seamstresses would sew them together, and then I would do the handwork for it. And because of the nature of the hours that I worked, it was necessarily after school and on weekends. So it was usually when the sailboat manufacturing part of the business was not open which gave me unlimited access to all the remnants of a sailboat manufacturing place, which included gobs of teak and hardware and the sailcloth and the interior fabric that they put on the inside of the hulls of the boat. So it was all remnants of them, but it was a treasure chest to a young sailor at the time. So I, uh, because of my job, I had lots of money and no expenses, so although I didn't know anything about sports and still don't, I was a great guy to go out on dates with because I had tons of money. I also had lots of cars. I, had, I figured one time I had 21 cars by the time I was 21, but one particular car that I really liked was basically built out of the remnants from this sailboat manufacturing place. I had a solid teak dashboard. I don't mean teak plywood, I mean solid teak. It was about three quarters of an inch thick. And I had this uh, camper van that I had converted for mountaineering. So it was, I had uh, a galley, I had a stove on a gimbal from remnants from the sailboat place. And the inside was lined with the fabric from the interior of the sailboats. And my mom had custom made this mattress for me in the back out of the the, the upholstery fabric of the inside of the boat. It was an awesome camper mattress, completely made over, made from leftover pieces. So it was, it was, uh, it was a, uh, it was awesome. But it was like I said, it was it was made out of remnants. Now when we talk about, talk about remnants, we usually think about carpet remnants, and we understand that a remnant is a piece, a fraction of a of a larger part, something that's left over. So a remnant is valuable. It's not worthless. But it's, it's, uh, it's just a small fraction. It's not much, but it's not nothing. What we're discussing today, is, a, and we're going to be discussing for the next couple weeks, is the question about the Jewish remnant. Specifically, we want to know um, what part do the Jews have in the time to come, in, in, the, in the end time? What part do the Jews have in the end times? So we're, we'll be talking primarily about the Jewish remnant, but in the process of talking about the Jewish remnant, we're going to also be talking about the American remnant as well. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 11, verse 1, where we left off two weeks ago. <laughs> Again, 
This passage is developing this theme that Paul brought up, uh, talking about the observation that very few Jews, very few of Israel has turned to Christ. It goes back to a discussion he had clear back in, in chapter 8 and then chapter 9 having to do with um, the believer's eternal security. But Paul observes, uh, Romans 10, 16, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our message. So Paul is admitting that when it comes to the Jews, his preaching has by and large been unsuccessful. It's been a failure. And he's lamenting that fact, and he's observing um, the fact that not everyone that, of the Jews that he speaks to has become a Christian. And we noted two weeks ago that that's a masterful understatement because the reality is hardly any of the Jews that he witnessed to um, became Christians. They, they rejected the message and they rejected the messenger. They, Paul was hounded mostly by the Jews. And we noted too, two weeks ago, that uh, Jesus makes this observation in the parable of the soils. He says, not everyone in fact, most who hear the word aren't going to respond and be fruitful. He talks about the seed that's sown generously and broadcast widely. Some of it falls on a path that's immediately taken away by the enemy. Some of it falls in rocky soil. It springs up and it looks good, but in a very short time it withers out. Some of that seed is cast among the weeds where it gets choked out by the worries of the world. And only a small fraction of the good seed which is sown ends up being fruitful. But that remnant, that one-fourth or less, is amazingly fruitful. So the remnant is small, but it's not nothing. That's the whole point that, that Jesus was making. And he gives us that illustration primarily to tell his disciples, this is what you can expect when you evangelize. When you spread the seed of the good word, you should expect a lot of it is not going to be fruitful. In fact, only a small amount would be fruitful. And in fact, that's exactly what the disciples experienced when they went out to evangelize. That was also true in Jesus' time, that a lot of people that fo followed him ultimately forsook him. But the remnant, the small amount, the, the, the few uh, produced an abundant harvest. Not all accepted the good news, Paul writes, but some did, some will. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And so even in Isaiah's time, it was true. By and large, the people that heard the truth did not accept the truth, were not fruitful. There were not many, but not many is not no one. Some of them did get saved. So there's always been a remnant, and there's always been a remnant of believers in Israel. God's always seen to it that there would be a believing remnant among the Jews, and that's still true today. Let's uh, pick up our text in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So again, this present discussion goes clear back to um, chapter 8 when Paul raises the issue of the believer's eternal security, and then he asks the question in chapter 9. Uh, it's, it, he poses it rather broadly. He says, if all 
believers are eternally secure because God has chosen them and not because they have chosen God. If we are secure in God's selection, what about this? Here are the Jews whom God has chosen, God has elect, God has called them, and yet they rejected him, rejected Christ, and in turn they are rejected. Doesn't that disprove the idea of eternal security? Because if God could reject his chosen people, Israel, why can't he also reject his chosen people, the Christian? How are we secure if God can change his mind? If God rejected them, can't he reject us as well? And if that is true, doesn't that completely undermine this doctrine of eternal security? Paul's immediate answer, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, is that God's plans for Israel have not failed. God has not failed Israel. He has not totally rejected them. They are not an utter loss. All whom God has selected, elected, chosen, set aside for salvation are or will be saved. That's the point he's making. Now, he continues this response by noting in our text here the fact that all Israel has not been rejected. In fact, some have turned to Christ. Most notably, he says, if I'm a Jew, if I'm an Israelite, if I am of that covenant people and I have been saved, if one person from the Jews has not been rejected, I'm not sure I said that right. If one person is saved, then you can't say that God has utterly rejected his people. And then he goes on to talk about that in this next section about this remnant of the Jews being saved. Now, let's just pause here for a slight digression because Paul uses an interesting term. He says, I am an Israelite. Primarily, there's three terms which are used of the Jewish people. There's, there's Hebrew, uh, Jew, and Israelite. The word Hebrew, remember when uh, all the people are wiped out in the flood and Noah has three sons, he had, one of his sons is named Shem. And from Shem come all of the Shemite, the Semite people. So all this huge race of people, the Semites, which would include um, Jews, are, are, are in this grouping of, of people. And from so you have Noah, Noah's son is Shem. Shem has a son named Eber, and the word Hebrew comes from Shem's son Eber. So this is a subsection of the Semites. So it's a, still a rather broad classification when you talk about um, Hebrew. Of course, the word Jew comes from the, the, one of the 12 tribes, Judah. Uh, Jude, Judah was the fourth son from Leah and becomes the prominent, uh, dominant tribe in Israel. So a lot of the reference to them as Jew comes from the term Judah. And then the, we have finally this fourth, or excuse me, this third term, which is most significant because that's the word Paul uses here when he says, I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Because the word Israelite, remember Jacob is wrestling at the brook of Jabbok with the angel, and God gives Jacob this covenant name of Israel. So it's significant that the name Israel re reflects the covenant, the covenant, the promise that God makes with a grouping of people. So Paul's using the covenant name of Israel rather than Hebrew or Jew. And this covenant name is the, is the point that Paul's trying to make. God has a promise, 
a covenant with a specific group of people, a covenant, a promise that God cannot and will not break. So in the question, has God abandoned the covenant people of Israel, Paul answers, surely not. He certainly has not. And I am one example because I am a Jew, I'm a Hebrew, I am an Israelite. God does not break his promise. But in fact, Paul goes on to say, one would be enough to discredit the argument that God has abandoned the Jews, just one. But the fact is that there are thousands of Jews who are, are, who are saved, who are part of the new covenant. In fact, maybe tens of thousands. Verse 2, uh, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. <clears throat> so you remember the story about Elijah. Elijah is a prophet to Israel the northern kingdom of Israel as opposed to the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And um, Israel has abandoned God. They have wandered off. They started out worshiping God, but then they started incorporating, syncretizing the gods of the, of the people around them. Before long, they're worshiping Baal. God sends Elijah into the, to the people, and he says that because they have abandoned him, begun worshiping false gods, idols, that there was, God was going to bring judgment. At your word, Elijah, there will be no rain until you say it's time again for the rain to come. So Elijah goes into hiding. There's this devastating drought throughout Israel. And then finally the end comes when God says, okay, now it's time. Go present yourself to Ahab and his evil wife um, Jezebel. Present yourself to the people of Israel and uh, show them that there is, in fact, only one God. And you remember the story about the Elijah's showdown on Mount Carmel, where, you know, he, he, Elijah says, okay, you bring your priest, and you worship your God, Baal, and let's do it this way. Whoever's God sends fire down to consume their offering, that's the real God. And so the priests of Baal set up their offering. They start gashing themselves dancing around, pleading with Baal to send fire. Elijah's taunting them. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's, maybe he's going to the bathroom and he can't hear you right now. And maybe you're not calling out loud. No, seriously, that's what it says. And what happens? Nothing. And then Elijah says, okay, you take the offering that I have and you pour water all over it and you pour a trough of water around it and let's call on God. And Elijah just starts calling on God. A pillar of fire descends consumes the offering, consumes the altar, consumes the water. Just this, and Elijah is really stoked. And what you do whenever you're excited like that, you go and kill somebody. So he goes and kills all these prophets of Baal. He's demonstrating to Israel there is one God, and this one God, Yahweh, is the real God, your God. These idols are false gods. And so Elijah confronts King Ahab and Jezreel and said, see, there's one God. And Elijah's thinking, he's done a really good thing. God's going to be behind him. God's going to endorse him. What happens? Nothing. In spite of this 
showdown, in spite of this pillar of fire that consumes the altar, in spite of the, the declaration that Yahweh is the only God, Israel does not repent, does not turn back to God. And he, Elijah finds himself in front of uh, Ahab and Jezebel, the, the king and queen, and Jezebel says, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow you are not dead like them. And what does Elijah do? He runs away. Why does he run away? You'd think he'd be so pumped from what just took place. But he's convinced at this point that he's a failure. He's convinced that he has failed as a prophet. He's convinced that Israel has failed because in spite of this huge demonstration, they have not turned back to God. The king and queen have not turned back to God. And so Elijah goes and runs for his life. He runs until he's exhausted. The Lord provides for him miraculously. Then we hear about the story where Elijah is at the wilderness, that Mount Horeb, probably where, probably where Moses met with God in the Sinai. And God asks him, you know, why have you given up? And, and basically, Elijah says, I've given up because I'm a failure and because Israel's a failure. And if, and if there's no one left, if everybody has abandoned you, his conclusion is, because he is the lone remnant that God will now withdraw his favor and his covenant and his promises from Israel. Since they have left you, I expect you have left them. He's a failure. There's no hope for him. There's no hope for Israel. Uh, God's promises have come to an end. His hope in God's faithfulness have now been completely exhausted. And what does God say to him? Verse, where are we? Verse 4, Romans 11, 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you look back in 1 Kings chapter 17 or 18, um, God also says, who have not kissed the idol, who have not kissed the, the Baal idol. What's he saying? You're not the only one, Elijah. There is still a faithful remnant. It's not just you. There's 7,000 others who have remained faithful. See, Elijah's problem was he's approaching this completely man-centered. They have failed. I have failed. Israel has failed. Therefore, the covenant is null and void. And what does God say? It doesn't depend on man. It's God-centered. Nevertheless, I have reserved for myself. I have set aside these 7,000 this faithful remnant. Verse 5, so too, now this is Paul talking, we're, we're, we've gone from Elijah's time to Paul's time, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And again, the situation is remarkably similar because now we're talking in Paul's time that there's, there, I, it looks like I'm the only one of the Jews that's turned to God. And he's saying, no, even now, even today, Paul's day, uh, there's this faithful remnant. How do they become the remnant? They are chosen by grace, God's action in setting them aside. Uh, like I said, there's 7,000 of them in, in Elijah's time, um, but um, that's, that's true in Paul's day, too, that there were tens of thousands of believers in Paul's day, and it's true 
today as well. Now, we have to agree that for the most part, the Jews of Paul's day and the Jews of our day have rejected the gospel. They are not faithful to the covenant promises. They've rejected Christ. Their, their numbers are negligible, but they're not none. They're few, but there are some. If we look back to Acts chapter 2, remember there's this, uh, this event at Pentecost when Peter's preaching, and we learn in Acts chapter 2 that there were 3,000 Jews who turned to Christ at that Pentecost time. So that's one, Paul, plus 3,000 at Pentecost. We learned by the end of chapter 4 that, well, actually in chapter, at the end of chapter 2, where he said many more were added to that, the Lord was adding daily to the number of those who were being saved. By the end of chapter 4, there were maybe as many as 20,000 believing Jews in Jerusalem alone in, in Paul's time. Curiously, maybe not, but curiously, that's about how many believing Jews there are in Israel today. There are about 20,000 believing Jews today, about the same number as there were in Paul's day. But worldwide, there's about 1.6 million believing Jews worldwide. It's a remnant, but it's, but it's a significant number. It's not nothing. It's few, but it's not, it's not nothing. So God's still doing that same thing today. Um, We've seen that, you see that all through the Bible. In fact, there's 62 references in the Bible to a believing, believing remnant. I remember in Isaiah's day, Isaiah is commissioned by God, and God says basically, go and preach the gospel, but they're not going to listen to you. They're, they're, by and large, they're going to turn away from you. And most of his hearers will not listen. Most of them are not going to repent. We get to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, and there's that famous reference to the stump which will be the, the root of the tree of Jesse. So there's still a remnant, even in Isaiah's time. There was a, a large number of Jews that abandoned God, which led to God taking them off to captivity in Babylon. And most of the Jews had rejected God by that time. And I say most because we know that there were exceptions. We know there's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Ruth, um, um, who am I forgetting? Anyway, point is, even in that time, there's a faithful remnant, a few in this faithful remnant. And by the time that Jesus comes, again, there were some that believed in Jesus, most did not. And we talk about even before Jesus is born, there was a few faithful that were looking for the Messiah, uh, Zechariah and his wife Mary, uh, I mean, his wife Elizabeth, and then Mary and Joseph. There's the, the shepherds at, at, uh, at Bethlehem. And then during Jesus' life, again, most of the Jews rejected his message and rejected him as the Messiah, but some remained faithful. And then we get to right after his departure, we get to Pentecost, and I've just told you that by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, there's, there's 20,000 believing Jews. It's, it's a remnant, but it's not nothing. Verse 6, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them over to a spirit of stupor, 
eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and, and bend their backs forever. What Paul says in verse 7 about this hardening is really a very frightful reality. And we've talked about this before. That if you continue to harden yourself to the gospel, you will be hardened. God will see to it that you are hardened. You initiate this action of hardening your heart and God will finish it so that in the end you are not able to receive the gospel because your heart is hardened and callous. And we see this, again, we see this in Israel. We see this among the Jews, that they hardened their heart against God over and over and over again, and then God hardens them. There are, there are, there are most that reject, but some that, that's, that are saved. So we have to ask ourselves now, so what's the significance of all of this teaching? Are we talking about ancient history? What happened in Israel 4,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago? Is it just history? Is it just a significance to, to Paul's readers, but largely irrelevant to us? But keep in mind, <coughs> there's no plan A and plan B. It's not like God had a plan with Israel and that failed, and so he had to stroke his beard and say, well, what am I going to do now? And it's not like the church is a new plan. Israel is the church. It's the church of the Old Testament. So their history is the history of the church. Now that's significant because we also see the pattern of Israel's failure repeated in the failure patterns of the church today. That's why it's significant to us now. We have the same pattern of people largely rejecting the gospel, but there is a remnant chosen by God who are saved. You know, people will ask you, okay, you're a Christian, isn't that nice? What about all these different denominations, and how do you know which one is right? How do you explain the fact that even within Christendom, there are all these different denominations? And I explain it this way. These churches start out well. They start out worshiping God. They start out being God-honoring, and they wander away. And some within those churches, the faithful remnant strike out on their own, and they start out a different church, a different denomination. It starts out well. And what happens? Even within that church, there's this faithful remnant. And you see that pattern over and over again. You see it displayed. That's why there's so many different denominations. They almost all start out well, but then they wander away. And then God calls out from them a faithful remnant. That's been true historically, and it is still true today. You still see within any church a faithful remnant among the many who categorically don't believe. And we see that in our culture right now. We see all, an abundance of churches, a number of people calling themselves Christians, but they're Christian in name only, and they don't really believe. Maybe you know the name of Christopher Hitchens. He's a, he's a British atheist. Uh, Christopher Hitchens became famous for writing a book, God is Not Great. God is Not Great, there's a subtitle to it, um, How Religion Has Poisoned Everything. God is Not Great, How Religion Has po Poisoned Everything. And Hitchens' premise is men have to be liberated from religion so, so that they can then move on to enlightenment. So this 
His whole idea is that unbelief in God produces enlightenment. There's this one occasion when Hitchens was interviewed by this Unitarian pastor by the name of Marilyn Sewell. And Marilyn Sewell on the radio poses this question to Christopher Hitchens. The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian. I don't take the stories from scriptures literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Listen to Hitchens' reply. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you are not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. <laughs> Isn't it odd that an outsider can see with perfect clarity what multitudes within the church cannot see? It's this. If you don't believe what the Bible says about God, about Christ, about the way of salvation, if you believe something outside of what the Bible teaches, you are not a Christian in any meaningful sense. You are a heretic. If you have a God that you prefer to worship, which is a kinder, gentler, more applauding God than the God of the Bible, you have a God who is an idol. You are an idolater. The biblical doctrine of the remnant is a very powerful reminder that most of the time, most of the people are wrong. They have given in to the enticements, the lustful persuasion of sin and of worldliness and of a rebellious heart. The truth is most often found in a very small grouping, a small enclave of, of minds and hearts that believe the Word of God to be true and wrestle with the Word of God and worship the God of the Word. David Duriani, excuse me, Daniel Duriani said, it has been the church's bane throughout the whole course of her existence that she must drag along with her so many who have no heartfelt conviction for the glory of Jesus Christ, of his lordship, of the surpassing great privilege to know him as savior from sin and death. Nothing has so diminished the church's witness in the world as the presence within her membership of so many who do not love Christ and do not live the Christian life. Paul has begun this whole argument about Israel's position as the covenant people in, in chapter 9, verse 4, when he asks, uh, uh, he says that the Israelites are the ones to whom the, belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises of God. See, God has made very specific, very clear promises to a group of people whom he has chosen from all of the world. God has selected Israel to be his covenant people, not America, not any other country. He made a covenant grouping of people with Israel, and he has made promises to them which are 
based solely on his own character and his word. Now, admittedly, a lot of the promises that God made are conditional promises. I will bless you as long as you walk in with me. I'm over-exaggerating. Some of them are unconditional promises. They have nothing to do whatsoever with Israel's behavior or any man's behavior. He makes conditional and he makes unconditional promises. The very fact that God has made unconditional promises to Israel which have not yet been fulfilled are proof positive to me that God is not finished with the people of Israel because he has to fulfill his promises. He has to do what he said he would do. God said to Israel, you only have I chosen among all the peoples of the world. Moses said to Israel, God has chosen you, elected, called you, God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than the other peoples, for you were fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he made with your forefathers. God has made promises with Israel that are unconditional, not based on their behavior. So he can no, never totally reject them because it would go against the promises that he made. And that just shows us why there has never been a time in the history of God's people where there has not been a remnant of the Jews who have been saved, whether you're talking about Isaiah's time, Elijah's time, Paul's time, or our time. There will always be a believing remnant. Now, we'll discuss this more thoroughly next week because that's really the, the, the crux of what we're going to talk about next week. But for now, we can sit here and lament the fact that we live in a society which is continually moving away from God, a society which is continually becoming godless, rebelling against God, rejecting God. Uh, we live in a society where Christianity is rapid, genuine Christianity is, is rapidly becoming a minority. And we could say, wow, what's happening here? Everybody's bailing out. But God did not abandon his people then. He will not abandon his people today. There will always be a remnant in Israel. And for different reasons that we'll get into more next week, God will not abandon his people in America. There will always be a believing remnant. Back in uh, 1949, the communists took over China. At that time, there was a huge missionary movement in China. It is estimated that in 1949, there was 100, excuse me, there were 1 million Christians among the Chinese when the communists took over and set up this atheist state. Right away, the communists began to close down churches, arrest pastors. Some of these pastors were sent to camps for re-education. Some of them were murdered right away. House churches are bulldozed down. Christianity became an illegal re religion. Um, like I said, here's an example of man's attempt to annihilate Christianity. That was 1949. Today, there are 106 million Christians in China. It's estimated that by the year 2050, there'll be 330 million Christians in China. By the year 2030, China is planning to export 20,000 missionaries into the world. I hope they send some of them here. <laughs> the point is, 
that God is able to preserve a remnant among his people and then to take that seed and multiply it in his time. We might see the time here in the United States where genuine born-again Christianity becomes uh, an illegal religion. If not that, at least a, a minority among all the, the false representations of Christianity. But America will never be without a faithful remnant. Maybe a few, but not no one. Now, I loved my job as a sailmaker. I loved the fact that it uh, uh, meant that I could afford to go on really great dates and have really cool cars. And, and I had a really cool camper van, mostly made out of remnants, leftover pieces, pieces that were not much, but not nothing. I wish now, however, that I had saved a remnant of my income and invested it, because I, <laughs> I spent it on cars and women as fast as I could. I went to college broke. <laughs> Don't be discouraged by the few number of genuine Christians that you're aware of around you. Don't be discouraged by the growing hostility towards Christ that we will observe in our lifetime. Don't be discouraged when you make bungling attempts at sharing your faith. Don't be discouraged that when you share your faith in a bungling way, very few respond to it favorably. And the reason for that is because it doesn't depend on you. God is at work behind the scenes. God is calling some. God will always bring a faithful remnant. They may be few, but few is not none. There'll always be a remnant. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will bless this church, that we will be Bible-believing Christians, and as our horizons expand about who you are, what you do, what you have done, that we worship a God of truth, that we worship the God of the Bible, not a God of our choosing and not a God of our imagination. We pray that in the process of us learning, uh, we are changing. As a process of being fed, we are being edified. Lord, I pray that you will take this faithful remnant and you bring a harvest among the people that we are surrounded by. Lord, in the end, find us to be faithful. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us for this last song.
mystery.